and that may be related to if you have gut imbalances it impedes your body's ability to make its own enzymes as well so that's really important because if you don't digest or make your own enzymes well you don't digest things and then essentially that sends a cascade of signals in your body that look like food sensitivities What's up, lovely ladies? Dr. Emily Kybert here with Thyroid Strong Podcast. I am a chiropractor, a mama to Elvis in Brooklyn, and I have Hashimoto's, but it's currently in remission. On this podcast, I share simple, actionable steps with a little bit of tough love on how to lose that stubborn weight, get your energy and your life back, and finally learn how to work out without burning out, living with Hashimoto's. Krista Bigler, welcome to Thyroid Strong Podcast. I'm super excited to have you on because a lot of women write in, email me asking questions around bloating and their gut health, and you are the person to go to. Well, you know, it's funny you say that because we were just talking about podcasting. I moved my podcast host, I don't know, maybe a couple of years ago. And so I think there's a variable from the old host versus the new host. But the point being that one of my most popular episodes is about practical approaches to bloating, which tells me, I don't know what the percentage is of people. And I think there's a lot of angles in which to look at this, but it affects a lot of people for a lot of reasons. And I know we're looking at it with the lens of Hashimoto's, but as people become more aware they understand that gut health is a key component of overall health. It's like the holistic insight. It's like the the core of the body, right? But our perception of bloating can be really significantly different overall. But you're right. Gut health is massively implicated in Hashimoto's. And what are some potential root causes of it? What does bloating look like? So when I first saw my first functional medicine doctor, I laid down. He's like, do you feel like you're bloated? I was like, Nah, like I didn't even know. And he palpated my tummy, my mm. abdomen. He's like, yeah, you're bloated. I was like, I am? How could bloating show up? Like, what does it feel like? What does it look like? Because I think mm. sometimes we're so disconnected from our body when we're going through newly finding out that we have an autoimmune condition. I see this swinging really strongly in both directions. So there are times where bloating is not wildly abnormal. I mean, generally, it's not a good symptom. But there are people who any little hint of it throughout the month. And I will tell you that with disordered eating history, there is a, I think it's like 90% of people with disordered eating history have gut issues later in life. And so there is a combination of body dysmorphia or how we're viewing our body and kind of working with it. It's like working against it versus working with it, I would say would be a simple way to say it. There are times of the month, like around ovulation and around your cycle, it's actually really normal to have some bloating and some gut changes changes the week before your cycle because of prostaglandins and different things. Technically normal, things you can potentially do about it depending on what you think. But that's really about awareness around, hey, my hormones ebb and flow and there are different changes that affect bloating that week. You know, So having that awareness, first of all, is very nice because sometimes we can become a little obsessive about it. So bloating can look like if you're bloated, like it can feel like you have pressure or just extension, distension on the upper part of your belly or the lower part of your belly. This isn't super precise, but if you have any bloating zero to two hours after a meal, we can talk about what that means. But that is essentially the transit time of the small intestine and then food goes 
into the large intestine. So there's a lot to say about how you digest, how well you digest and what impacts that overall. But I've had people swing on the pendulum the total other way where they've had at certain times of the month, what looks like they describe a basketball or volleyball or like massive pregnancy belly. And I would say that's totally not normal. That's not what you want. And that can help us come up with some different root causes like deep, deep gut infections and what's going on in the trenches. Now, to that end, it made me think about diastasis recti. And of course, diastasis recti being those core muscles that are challenged, you would probably be able to speak more to diastasis recti than I would. But that can obviously change your ability or the core's ability to hold everything in there. And you can have what may look like distension or you may like struggle a little bit more with that. In general, real bloating is kind of a source of discomfort. It feels like you might have to unbutton your pants. It feels like more pressure in the abdomen and it might be paired with gas or gurgling or something like that overall. That would be kind of how I would look at it. Like massive swings to either side and then kind of like what's most significant through the middle. So bloating in different parts of the abdomen can kind of direct a practitioner to different possible root causes. Maybe. Maybe. I think if we're thinking about what's going on in the gut, I think it's more important to think of like overall digestion. And I will say that conventionally, we are now accepting SIBO or small intestinal bacterial overgrowth as more commonplace because it's been around for over 15 years, which is how long it takes for things to get from research into practice. So we're accepting that more. But what happens is people go in, sometimes have trouble even getting this what is actually not a very expensive test um, to their regular primary care provider. And it may be just because I see the people feeling out of this, you know, so I might have a bit of a skewed perception around it. But people will get treated with a drug that is supposed to target the small intestine, often called Zyfaxin or Rifaximin. Um, That's the most common standard of care for SIBO or small intestinal bacteria overgrowth. And I mentioned that the transit time of the small intestine was zero to two hours, but people have relapse. And I think there's so much more to it than that. What's going on upstream and then downstream? And how is our stress involved in the overall digestion, et cetera? Because point blank, if you're not digesting food well, just regardless of what you see coming out the other end, you're not digesting well, it will ferment and cause gas and bloating overall. Interesting. So there's lots of options, but we can boil it down to simplicity. With small intestinal bacteria overgrowth, what they're looking at with testing is just two bacteria. I think that is so short-sighted. And I think there's so much more bacteria and other infections that can be happening in the large intestine and then also above. And we should, actually, this is a perfect segue into talking about infection that really is related to Hashimoto's thyroiditis, which is H. pylori. So if you don't mind, I'd love to talk about that for a quick moment because this is like one of... I'd love for you to talk about it because it just came up on my GI map. Okay, great. So (laughs) thanks for Erin giving me that segue. So I was going to do a little bit more literature review. So anecdotally in practice, I see this all the time, but in the literature, it's there too. For example, I pulled up one study from 2016 about, and it was a small study under 100 women, and they looked at the prevalence of H. pylori with, and I wonder what diagnostic tools they used because we need to talk about that next. They looked at the prevalence of H. pylori in those with Hashimoto's thyroiditis, and it was almost 50% of those women had H. pylori. So I find that that's 100% going on with people with H. pylori. But what's more important is I have to remember that we're not all on the same page when we're talking about this. So it's just talking about how SIBO testing hit like your primary care provider's office. And I find that like depending on where you are in the US, your provider, all those things, you may have a different experience 
experience on on what's most progressive. But this takes me back to my years working in conventional medicine and seeing clients that were like had these severe H. pylori symptoms of indigestion, nausea, et cetera. Like it, when it gets really severe, it looks like massive indigestion, nausea, maybe even trouble holding weight. That was like very severe. And this guy would test positive, take a bunch of antibiotics, test negative, but never really looked different. And now in retrospect, our testing conventionally is just so there is a huge gap in sensitivity. So things have to be a real hot mess or really acute in that moment or horrific for it to typically show up on conventional testing. That is for parasitic pathogens. That's for H. pylori. That's just been my experience. So there are options out there. I will say the GI map is probably the better functional medicine stool test out there. And I can't tell you the exact stats, but they are able to tell you how sensitive it is looking at H. pylori. Now, I will say this can be a bit of a piece of contention in our field because it's thought that 50% of the world has H. pylori. Is it actually commensal or normal bacteria? And it's found in research that 30% of Americans have H. pylori. Here's how I interpret this. If I see it on a test, I take care of it. Symptoms improve. The end. And I counsel people on not continue to pass it around. Why is it so prevalent? We share it with saliva and with sharing cups and spoons, et cetera. It's an upper GI bacteria or pathogen uh, more so. And so that's how we typically share it. But it may be presenting in the lower GI. So when you're describing a GI map, it is a stool test. And that is the lower GI or the large intestine. So if it's showing up there, it may not exacerbate in the upper GI through nausea, through vomiting is real extreme. Probably not going to say anyone. Most people are not dealing with that, honestly. Nausea, indigestion, burping, et cetera. It's typically upper GI, even though you're seeing it lower. And obviously, it's all connected. It doesn't matter. And before we push record, you were talking about protein. And I also want to tell you about how this influences that and why it's so important and what it actually feels like to you as a person, if I may. (laughs) Yeah, please do. So if you've got some H. pylori going on, then you know your stomach acid or your ability to specifically digest protein is going to be an issue. Even though protein is amazing and we need it and we need all the amino acids, what does protein become when when we digest it is amino acids. Amino acids are key for mood detoxification, phase two detoxification, tissue regeneration, all kinds of things. It's like massively important, massively important. But if you are definitely dealing with low stomach acid, gut imbalance, et cetera, and there's other reasons stomach acid can be suppressed, chronic stress suppresses stomach acid, digestive enzymes, bile function, et cetera. But if you got H. pylori, that's another reason you can have low stomach acid. If, if that is suppressed, you will eat protein. A real common red flag is that eating a large amount of protein just kind of sits or maybe feels like a rock in the gut or doesn't really feel like it goes anywhere, right? So that's one thing to think about there. And one other thing, animal proteins are our only source of vitamin B12, which is a nutrient related to energy, very simply. And you can pretty easily get your doctor to check for that. That's pretty commonplace. I will say that the reference range has changed over the years I've been in practice. If it's under 500, I think it's worthwhile to consider improving it. But what I want to say is always ask questions. If your B12 is low, great. You're probably going to feel better putting B12 back. It's going to maybe possibly help with energy. But if it's low, there's a history of some gut things going on and you're not digesting. It's just another outward sign that you're not digesting those animal proteins. So you're not absorbing those nutrients. So we've got like, there's quite a cast 
skate. It feels complex, but it's all like the same thing at the road, yeah. right? It's all like the same track. Right. It's an infection or imbalance. And then also like there's a stress component potentially as well that can cause all kinds of things. So it's like a couple different root causes. But if you look at the big umbrella, just simplify it. Say like there's imbalances that have to be corrected. This particular imbalance causes low stomach acid, poor protein digestion, which causes then a cascade of other things. So sometimes people feel like they have to do so much, like it's just like overwhelming. But I encourage you to think about it's really just so connected. So when you hit the right domino, it just makes all the other dominoes kind of come into place. So when women are diagnosed with an H. pylori infection and they treat it, but then it comes back or they feel like they're frequently treating an H. pylori infection, Mm-hmm. maybe they should start looking somewhere else. Yeah. So there's a couple things to think about there. Anytime I see it pop up on a test, I want to just talk to you about the people in your life because we share microbiota with the people that we live with, regardless if we are in romantic involvement or not, which is interesting. So I always want to ask about significant other symptoms. Does your significant other have any burping, indigestion, nausea, heartburn? For some reason, those are all different. (laughs) They all mean something different to different people. So I like to ask about that first, because otherwise that's a vector point where you continue to be reinfected. Now let's not leave out animals because I've had these conversations with vets before and they're like, oh yeah, dogs have H. pylori all the time. And they're like vomiting or whatever. And people get licked in the face by their dogs a lot. So just another thing to think about from a vector point, like where are you getting exposed to this? I'm so much more careful than I used to be. Not like some weird, I don't live my life way, but just do not share (laughs) things with people or drinks with people in the way I once did. There are also things that relax the lower esophageal sphincter and allow some reflux to come up. So it can be H. pylori. And if like you're continuing testing over and over and over. So one, how was the first protocol? Two, the next thing, which was your question is, could there be another cause? It's almost always some form of stress. And like, no one wants to hear that. But stress chemistry, what it does is it suppresses stomach acid, which allows bacteria to overgrow. So stomach acid is meant to be a gate. It's why I always love, this is my favorite analogy for this. It's like, why when you're in college and you leave a pizza out all night, you can go eat it the next day and not get really sick because stomach acid is what that pizza is bathed in with all that crap growing on it. So if you have suppressed stomach acid from stress or from bacterial pathogens like H. pylori, one or the other, it is going to allow crap to come in and set up shop. It's a gate. So if that gate is wide open, now you allow things to come in and go downstream and continue to cause havoc. And unfortunately, our greatest challenge is unrealized stress or the thought that we don't have it or that we're actually fine just because we're doing some meditation or all these different things. It is a bit of an ongoing process of like really stopping. So I use a few data points to help me understand what stress looks like because in, in transparency, even last year, I thought my stress was pretty good and I got my mineral test results and it was like, yeah, your stress actually sucks historically. And I was like, hmm, this looks real bad. I am going to look at this differently <laughs> from now on. And I can tell you a little bit about that. But And so what I want to say is that minerals are dumped under stress and that's kind of the area I look at or one nutrient deficiency perspective. And there are minerals involved in how you make stomach acid. And when your cortisol is elevated, which is the darling stress hormone secreted by the adrenal glands. When your cortisol is elevated, you dump out potassium, you dump out magnesium, et cetera. So for me, things that I don't, I didn't think were stressful, like talking fast and getting excited, being interviewed on a podcast, I have to really watch the rate of my speaking 
and watch my heart right now because even though I didn't think of it as a negative stress, it was my cortisol was pumping and I was dumping nutrients and I was continually having not reflux exactly, but burping, like recurrent burping because of poor stomach acid, which was really a downstream effect from stress. Interesting. It's a sad deal. Low stomach acid, very common in the Hashi women. Mm-hmm. Stress is a factor. Gut infection is a factor. Is there any other, like why the Hashi ladies with low stomach acid? Well, it's not that we're just picking on them. It's actually like a, I feel like it's everyone. <laughs> and again, I look at it from the lens of like all kinds of people with gut stuff. Backing up, I've never seen an autoimmune case that didn't have like a stress straw that broke the camel's back situation. Just never seen it. So there's some kind of stressful history that changes stress chemistry and allows like a cascade. It basically suppresses the immune system, suppresses stomach acids, suppresses digestive enzyme function, which remember if we aren't making enzymes digesting things, we're going to have bloating, which I know is our main topic. Suppresses bile, which also helps digest fat, fatty foods or like any fats, which are essential essential, by the way. So all of those things are going to get suppressed. So when we're talking about low stomach acid, it's actually not about Hashimoto's as much as it's about stress when we all have stress. So it's just a matter of how are we processing it? How do we feel when we have it? We like to shove things under the rug (laughs) and we are strong, powerful women, like successful women, right? So we like to pretend it's not an issue or that we're managing it fine. Sometimes we have to get real raw and honest and be like, oh, that person that wasn't very nice to me for a very long time made me feel uncomfortable every time I walked by them. And that was a stressor. Oh, starting meetings 15 minutes after my kids walked out the door and I didn't have time to like prep fully for the day. That was a stressor. Going from back to back to back meetings and then back to back to back other things is a stressor. It's stuff we don't really think about because we're like, well, it's just life. But depending on how a short temper yelling at our spouse or our children or our friends or someone we love, right? It's weird to take it out on someone we love. Those are all that's like unrealized stress, right? And so for me, I just like pay so much attention to <laughs> like, oh, is my heart beating very quickly or is it a little bit slowly? I'm like pay a lot of attention to that now. So anyway, to answer your question, it's not just Hashimoto's ladies. It's not like, oh, it's just you. It's actually because we're surrounded by stress and we don't fully always recognize it or we haven't changed how we are personally processing it. So I have to stop myself a lot and just say, it's okay, I can slow down, talk a little slower because <laughs> it's a bit of a stressor to talk, which I've been like that my entire life. So it's hard. It's not instant. It's going to be a bit of a journey to shift what is your current normal to your new normal. How do you differentiate a stressor that is pushing under the rug that's chronic versus maybe a stressor that's motivating, right? Because stress, cortisol is also motivating. It Mm. gets us up and going. Because I think sometimes the narrative is de-stress, don't stress, unstress, Mm -hmm. but using stress to our advantage and leveraging it is also a powerful tool. Yeah. I think I would ask you which parts of cortisol are motivating. Yes. When I see something on my schedule at X time, it's motivating to get things done at a certain time. So it's not a, this is a journey for everyone and there's not like one quick, easy fix. It's simply a, hey, am I reactionary or am I proactive to it? Like, If my week is jacked full, am I actually 
nourishing throughout that. Because what happens when we get busy is we sometimes like everything kind of goes downhill. Like we don't even want to show up to the day. And so we forget to like even put food in our mouths, right? That's a common problem. And like the whole 2017, 2018, even to now, fasting was a big thing. So when we don't nourish, we are creating more stress in our body as well, whether we realize it or not. Because the body's like, I'm trying to balance my blood sugar over here and I got nothing to work with. I have to increase your cortisol to balance your blood sugar. Just like coffee in the morning without any food. It's like, all right, cortisol showing up, popping. There are ways to show up and be motivated by cortisol, but also it's a matter of how are we processing it internally in the nervous system. Can we switch from, yep, I can go to go, go meetings. And then can I sit at my desk or not sit at my desk? More importantly, like eating at my desk is, is not an anti, it's not like a less stress approach to eating. But can I switch from the fight or flight side of my nervous system to the rest and digest. And that's really what it boils down to is like, how neuroplastic am I? Meaning how quickly can I switch from one to the other? If I was doing biometric data on this, what would this look like? Can I get my heart rate to slow down? Can I do like a round of a little bit of breath work, like for like a minute before I eat? Can I acknowledge whether certain meetings or people that I encounter through the day are bigger stressors and I need to take a second and like exhale that and do what I can to try to mitigate that. Instead of pretending that we are like super women, it's not supposed to be disempowering. It's just allowing us to like see it a little bit differently. Cause I think right now we're like, well, I'm not, I'm fine. I'm not stressed. I get good sleep. I do this. I do this, but it's the little things like not nourishing, not like running from thing to thing to thing without paying attention to kind of what your heart rate's doing all of. So I don't know if that really answers your question yeah. at all. Cause it's like, I think people say often, they say exercise is my antidote to stress. And I think that that can be fine. It's totally fine. But if your exercise is always cardio only, you know, that hits your stress or your heart rate a little bit differently than switching that up with weights, et cetera. And if we have some kind of weight on our shoulders, I was actually doing some, I'm constantly a work in progress as well. So I was paying attention to the way I was taking a quiz the other day and was talking about your behaviors around exercise. And it got me thinking about when I first got into exercise and how I had to show up and do this very specific thing every day. And I know this is a bit of a cliche term and listening to your body, but I'm in a little different place now than I was at that time where it was like, I have to show up, have to do it this way, have to, have to, have to. Now I look at it as I'd like to move my body. I enjoy it. I get to get to. Right. And so that might be one way I would differentiate that where it's like, you know, yeah, I know your alarm goes off and you're reacting, but what if your whole circadian rhythm, what if you like woke up a little bit more gently, <laughs> you know, and, and got to whatever you wanted to do for the day. So I always like try to break it down from reaction to proactive. And I, I know I got a little off tangent there, but it's hard to talk about stress because it's, it can be something that we can't touch very well. I am not an expert on like the all of the things happening in the brain exactly. I more look at what are the downstream effects, what happens with nutrient deficiencies, what happens in the gut, et cetera. But what I can tell you is that people have relapse and they don't get as better as fast as they could when stress is really significant. I told a client recently, she was you know, asking about where she was in timeline. And I just said to her, I've never seen you sit down in any of our calls every week for 10 weeks. I've never seen you sitting. You're always on a treadmill, running around, doing all those things. I'm like, I've never seen you sit, which is just interesting. It was just like pointed out to her. She probably hadn't realized it. 
Yeah. She didn't realize that she was the only person moving around <laughs> in our calls. It's not right or wrong. I mean, if you are on the phone and you want to get some movement, fantastic. But there is a, you know, we have patterning, right? And yeah. we don't even realize our patterning sometimes. Yeah. It's unrealized stress that this is the issue. Going back to bloating, like how do you start to create a hierarchy of treatment, right? So stressor is kind of one tip of the triangle. I've heard some practitioners talk about like since H. pylori is high up in the GI system that that should get treated first and then to work Mm. your way down. How do you start to, I mean, obviously you have to uncover the root causes, but how do you start to prioritize treatment, right? Because you don't want to treat everything at once and Mm -hmm. overload someone with, you know, a hundred supplements, but you know, you're ruling things out. You're ruling out SIBO, H. pylori, maybe a parasitic infection. How do you approach it? Yeah. First, before I kind of jump into prioritizing, that's a great question. If we're going with the theory that you start from the top to the bottom, the brain's at the top technically, right? So when I'm assessing a case, I'm looking at, if I'm being a bit, I always tell them, like the boring approach is I'm going to support four things, the gut, the liver, the thyroid, and the adrenals. And I just need to figure out what is the priority overall. And... If your adrenals have been, so to speak, burned out, like stress has been up for a long time and you now are not producing cortisol because your adrenal function, literally cells have been killed. And so your mitochondria are not producing hormone the same way they were. And let me give you some red flags for that. Dizziness from sitting to standing and laying to sitting up, craving salts, feeling worse after cardio versus other types of exercise or more tired or more exhausted um, a little longer and just feeling kind of like exhausted, which can be a lot of things, right? But just like overall exhausted, can't really get moving during the day, can't really function without coffee potentially or stimulants. Those are all like big, big red flags for the adrenals just not showing up to work. If that's going on, that needs to be supported for like a month or so, probably before you get into gut work. The problem is, is that everything probably needs support. It's just a matter of what do you start with. And I agree with you. I start with one and then I kind of, my efficiency is a core value. (laughs) So then I kind of move on to the next one. So I'm like, okay, I'm hearing the adrenals are in rough shape or like light, light sleeping is another adrenal one. Um, So I want to give you some mitochondrial support and some minerals and some other just gentle things that support what's going on in the adrenals. And by the way, if your adrenals are in rough shape, you tend to be more sensitive to everything. As a side note, you're just very sensitive. And this is very much on the table because any kind of autoimmune stuff, it's just related. Like there, it's very common for us to be kind of burned out, honestly, and we need to take a beat. So supporting that for at least maybe a few weeks to a month before layering in those gut recommendations may allow you to get ahead farther and sustain your results longer. Healing and correcting and supporting and loving on and nourishing those glands and organs that are really struggling, they're atrophied, is about a three, six, nine, 12 month process, depending on what kind of inputs you put in. But it doesn't mean you have to stop and do only that. So I would just say, if your adrenals look like they're on the struggle bus, if you start there, give that a little attention, you may actually give your gut a very positive downstream effect, to be perfectly honest. Because if you're paying attention to what your stress and cortisol and adrenals and nourishing that, you're stopping and being a little more intentional in other areas hopefully. And so that is going to influence how your body makes digestive enzymes on its own. And so at least if you start adrenal stuff or stress stuff, three, four, five weeks in advance of like layering gut stuff and gut stuff, it just depends on, I mean, I like to do gut testing on pretty much everyone who walks on my door, but they know what they're asking for when they walk in the door when I advertise gut stuff, right? 
So I like to see what's going on under the hood, what's going on in that large intestine. It gives me, and then use questioning for what's going on upstream. Personally, I do like to address a lot of things in the gut as streamlined and as efficiently as possible. So H. pylori is a big deal, but sometimes your symptoms, unfortunately, a lot of these tests don't bring up whether parasites are potentially an issue. So sometimes you have to listen for symptoms. So like the gal that had the volleyball or the basketball in her gut around the full moon, those are super parasitical symptoms. And those are significant bugs. You know, they're a problem and they're not just going to go away because you reduce stress. They're just not. And so, I mean, that's my opinion, but addressing each of those pathogens in a way that's not a zillion supplements, you're right. There are people like sometimes this is not done in a way that is cognizant or aware or considerate of the client and what they can handle or what is reasonable. I always like to say like, what is like a rational person want to do? <laughs> so adrenal stuff, adding the gut stuff, some of those you want to start with like the bigger ones. The thing is, is like everything is important. So there's a ways to like just step them all in so you're not overwhelmed. And then always, I think, be an advocate for yourself. If you see a practitioner and they feel a bit overwhelming, because I've also seen some people recently, more and more and more, I see people who are coming from other practices. I'm like, well, why are you here from this other practice? What's going on? So we review the case, which, you know, takes a bit more time. And sometimes people have done a zillion tests and they're on a zillion things. I'm like, this is just too much. It's a disaster. (laughs) You know, it's just overwhelming and too much. And I think it's okay to just step back and I'm going to implement one piece of this information at a time and to ask for more help or to say, hey, this is a lot of stuff. Could we prioritize a little bit differently? Just being a really good advocate for yourself is really, really important as well. And sometimes you want to like pull out before things get too deep. If it's just, we all learn lessons and sometimes the practitioner is not the right fit for us, depending on where we're at. So priority wise, if your adrenals are fried, start there. If not, then potentially start with the gut. It kind of depends on the symptom, but we're talking about Hashimoto's. And I would say like, if I broke that in half, it's gut stuff and stress chemistry, what's going on in the brain, nervous system, and the downstream effects of the deficiencies. And then from there, filling in nutrient gaps, rebalancing things, et cetera, trying to make it simple, streamlined, et cetera, overall. But sometimes people have other symptoms that, you know, throw where something gets kind of to the front of the line type thing. So skin stuff is an issue, depending on how that skin stuff was presenting would change sometimes that priority. So a little different for everyone, but hopefully that was useful in helping someone kind of self-identify like where they are. Because if you just go like after gut stuff, gut stuff, gut stuff, and you don't pay attention to the nervous system, very often you will not make the progress you would like to make. Unfortunately, it will just kind of keep coming back. I think when a lot of women experience bloating, their very first thought is, okay, what is it in my food? What is it that I need to cut out? And a lot of women are like, oh, I have a food allergy or sensitivity or this food intolerance. And I know there's a lot of different tests out there. None of them are really great or maybe the gold standard for picking up those specifically sensitivities, less of like a anaphylactic reaction mm-hmm. to food. What do you tell women when they are thinking, oh, maybe it's what I'm eating. Maybe I should start mm-hmm. cutting a bunch of stuff out or um, start to look down that route. Yeah. I mean, this like is a deep question for me because this is actually kind of my practice started. I think I started doing some of this work in like 2015, 2016. And as a dietitian by trade, of course I looked at food first and I got a lot of success and I was doing food sensitivity testing. I was doing a very specific one, doing a very specific protocol. And that worked for a while and then it didn't. (laughs) 
And maybe God just gives you what you can handle in that moment, I think, sometimes. And now it's like a 360 where people come and they've got sensitivities to food and my, and I'm always like, can we eliminate those sensitivities by not restricting further? So that's just like one way of how I I wanted to set the stage and like, that's how I think about it now. And so that's kind of how I'm going to answer that question a little bit. I want to challenge someone because if you are not digesting well, those undigested bacteria will create essentially messages in the system. And the system will say, I'm confused by this food and I'm I'm going to fire a reaction at it where inherently the food is not bad, but it's the digestion and the processing of the food that looks wonky to the body because there's things kind of out of balance overall. So backing up, your question is, hey, what if I remove things? So it's so gratifying when we like change our diet and we see some changes. And I will tell you, once you cross the line for autoimmune conditions, Sometimes changing your diet can give you quite a bit more ROI. What I see commonly walk through my door is someone who's already tried things. And I always think it's like good. There's different ways to think about food. Am I restricting without an end in sight? Am I doing an experiment for a couple of weeks, maybe maximum four weeks? Or am I to have like restriction disordered, which is really that first one. It's like there is restricting without any exit plan or reintroduction plan. Or life is busy and I just like felt good. And then all of a sudden I woke up and it was six months later and now I hate it. (laughs) Or am I going to be really intentional? And I'll tell you what, the first time you change your diet, you hate it. Typically, often, often people do. And so actually most people come to me, they've already done some diet changes. My question is, are you in a place of too much restriction? Or did you do a short-term experiment for a couple of weeks? And what can you tell me about that time? Because I don't think we need to over-restrict if something is not necessary. So I'm not a fan of like unnecessary restriction overall. Now, can there be food stuff going on with, with Hashimoto's or any autoimmune thing? Totally. So I use the integrative process also as a lens. So the first step of the integrative process is to remove barriers. Those barriers might be gut imbalances, toxic burden from the liver, stress. <laughs> so all things we've talked about today. And sometimes food stuff fits in there, right? But it just needs to have an exit plan. Second step is replacing enzymes, nutrients, et cetera. The next step is repairing or populate. So that's kind of where that fits. But the main takeaway is that people get stuck and remove. And so if I get someone with Hashimoto's and we want to know, the tricky thing about Hashimoto's is sometimes there's not an outward signal or sign or symptom that gluten or something like that could be an issue. And so for people, I just kind of like match the client. If someone has been restricting and they'd like to see if it's actually making a difference and they don't see symptoms from re-adding it, we will kind of make a game plan around checking those antibodies and seeing if it's making those antibodies flare overall. And if so, then we just go back to like doing rebalancing, correcting, 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 and potentially trying again later and seeing where we land. Because where you're at in your healing journey today will hopefully be different than it is in three months from now, six months from now, nine months from now. And I used to eat gluten and get keratosis pilaris on the back of my arms or chicken skin for a long time, probably like a year or two. Now I don't. So yay, (laughs) you just continue to heal. And you've reintroduced it. Yeah, I reintroduced it. I think food quality can be an issue, right? Food quality can be an issue. But one mantra that I use a lot is just be more supportive than aggravating. Like I went to the state fair this weekend and I enjoyed it. And that was great. And maybe like five years ago, I couldn't have done that with where my health was at that time without some negative reactions. And so you can try things. If it doesn't work, chalk that up to say, I'm not quite there yet. It's fine. I'm just going to keep healing in this non-rigid way and listen to my body and just pay attention to the signals that it's giving me. You mentioned in the beginning that if you had bloating within like the first hour or two after eating, 
that that was a potential sign of something. Small intestinal bacteria overgrowth, potentially. Oh, okay. Yeah. But what, and thanks for asking this and clarifying it, because I don't want people to run up and be like, man, I got to do a zillion testing things. I think that you can learn so much from just questioning your symptoms and pulling that together. Honestly, I'm like working on a whole spreadsheet of symptom checking because I just think symptoms tell you so much, if not more sometimes than testing does for cheaper. But if you you have bloating zero to two hours after eating, you have some small intestinal imbalances probably. Like that's a transit time. Some people slow motility anyway, by the way. But what I do in that situation is I address large bowel imbalances because if you have small bowel imbalances, we're usually only looking at our standard care right now is looking at two bacteria. And again, I just think that's very short-sighted. It doesn't attribute for H. pylori. It doesn't attribute for larger bacteria, Prevotella, Staph, Strep, and all the things that are going on down there. So I would just chalk it up as there are imbalances and there's an issue with enzyme production and that may be related to, if you have gut imbalances, it impedes your body's ability to make its own enzymes as well. So that's really important because if you don't digest or make your own enzymes well, you don't digest things. And then essentially that sends a cascade of signals in your body that look like food sensitivities. If you've got bloating zero to two hours after eating, there's a couple things to consider. Could I have some downstream stuff? Let me look at my symptoms a little bit more. Let me Google up multiple symptom questionnaire on the old Googler and fill that in and see if there's any other symptoms that are coming up because the gut can be kind of far reaching on other symptoms as well. And also, so let me look at what's going on downstream and also let me look at how I'm eating. So another structural intervention is how am I eating? Do I inhale something that is not a very big badge of honor? So in college, my classmates used to say, Somehow she can talk the most and still be done eating first. That's a terrible, <laughs> terrible prize to win, by the uh. way, because your stomach doesn't have any dang teeth. So you got to chew that up. And so if you are kind of like just gulping down food between things, which granted, just stop. Like we've all done that. My charge for you today or tomorrow is like make yourself a little alarm in your phone, like around the time you're going to eat and say, can I chew each bite 15 to 20 times? It does not feel normal, but it does slow you down. <laughs> and whether we like it or not, sometimes we do have to slow down for a minute in order to like see what things look like. So if you're having bloating, pay attention to how you eat as well as I think we're often like, what am I eating? That's okay. Yeah. But pay attention also to how you eat and then pay attention to it might be what you eat, but it also might be downstream and how the body's processing that. Yeah. For people who don't know, what undigested food mm-hmm. in your stool? Like you should not have undigested food in your. Like that's yeah. probably not a normal. I mean, thing. corn does not digest for anybody. <laughs> yeah. Let's just be real. Neither do whole flax seeds. There are some things that you do come out on the other side. Let's yeah. just be honest. Now the tricky part is is that I don't think that that's the only or best way to assess for it. I think in general, if you've got bloating, things are not digesting optimally. The end. So if bloating is happening, you're probably not digesting optimally. What are the potential causes of you not digesting? Poor enzyme function, either related to gut imbalances or stress chemistry, simplifying again and reiterating, or how you ate, which is also related <laughs> to often like our behavior, behaviors overall. Like, so how am I eating? How am I digesting? Like you brought this up, like, hey, I should start at the top, the small intestine. Actually, start in the brain. 
and then in the mouth and then in the small intestine, right? The stomach, then the small intestine, like go, like consider down the stream. You could also think about it going from backwards up too. And it's not totally wrong to be perfectly honest. Like however you want to think about it, there's multiple, I always want you to know, like there's multiple ways to arrive at the same conclusion. Yeah. It's just like, what is the best fit for you? And we learn that somewhat by failing or not liking what we experience. Like probably you too. I practice the way I practice because people that failed me, you know, and like things I did that were hard and I didn't want other people to have to deal with that. Like yeah. taking a zillion supplements without an end in sight and just having a closet full of them. I don't really care for that. That sucks. <laughs> like uh, I did stuff like that for a couple of years or for a few years when I first met my husband. And yeah, I, I don't really care for it anymore. There's a level of understanding what I've got and having things for times of need. And then there's just having a bunch of crap I don't know what I'm going to do with. Like, yeah. But, you know, you live and you learn with every piece of it. And, yeah. and if we aren't catching our lessons, then we continue to have to learn the same ones. That's been a new thing for me this year. It's like, oh, if I didn't learn from that lesson, I have to just continue to learn the same one. That's Ugh. fun. Real good. <laughs> lessons are rich this year. Yeah. <laughs> Unrelated to nutrition. You talk about autoimmune disease not being an organ dysfunction, but an autoimmune system dysfunction. Well, autoimmune disease at the most basic level, is the body kind of attacking itself. When I think about Hashimoto's, it's trending in the more sluggish thyroid realm. So it's like thyroid stuff, which by the way, I think all of us need to love on our thyroid, but then it's turned into a, the body got some mixed up messaging where it's kind of like attacking. So there's 100% a brain component and like what happened, but also what are the other potential implications? I would say with all autoimmune issues, addressing what's going on in the gut, the liver, the adrenals, it's all, it has overlap. So you have things in common with other people that are dealing with it as well. There's just some nuances, like potentially up to 50% of people with Hashimoto's have some H. pylori. Now, how you're going to diagnose it or find it can vary. And I would say a GI map is a good way. Asking your doctor, it's probably going to be negative usually because it have to be really, really, you'd have to have really, really, really severe symptoms. But symptom-wise. With a breath test? Is that how conventional medicine or how do they do it? I think there's a couple ways. <laughs> I'm kind of actually like not remembering this right now. If they use a breath test and or if sometimes they look with endoscopy, don't quote me, not a provide, not a diagnostic clinician. Gotcha. So I cannot remember at the moment. So and a GI map is a stool test. So again, slightly unconventional, but what about just looking at symptoms? If you're burping, indigestion, heartburn, et cetera, like those are big H. pylori symptoms when you yeah. put those together. And then the last thing I want to touch on is you talk about the trifecta approach, right? So stress is kind of one corner of the trifecta. What are the other two corners? Yeah, I always think you can go through like any symptom or issue looking through it through this one lens. And like you said, stress or emotional is one angle. Structural is another angle and nutritional is another angle. Let me give you a couple examples of this. Since our conversation started with bloating, let's just run bloating through that trifecta or that triad. So from an emotional perspective, if we're more in fight or flight than rest and digest, literally the body is not going to process or be in a place where it can make enzymes and do the digestive processes that need to happen for up to four hours after meals, right? So if it's in that fight or flight state versus rest and digest. So there's one emotional angle. Structurally, we talked about mastication or chewing food, you know, from a bloating perspective. Nutritionally, this feels confusing because I'm going to talk about gut dysbiosis as well, because I feel like gut dysbiosis is part of, you could decide, is that more of a structural issue or whatever, but gut imbalances impact nutrient deficiencies for sure. So we talked about B12 earlier, which is going to then affect your energy levels. And then another thing 
is that having like poor mineral status or poor nutrient status also can affect stomach acid production and then therefore digestion and therefore bloating overall. So there's a little overlap. So let's use another one. Let's say someone has, I don't know, a headache, for example. If you run it through that, having stress can make someone like grind their teeth and cause like tension or I believe you're a chiropractor by trade, right? So there's a lot of like subluxations, right? Subluxations are, or I do not feel like that's rolling off my tongue very well that can be involved in like a headache. So that's a structural, like often refer people to either PT or DC often for a structural intervention for a headache. Nutritionally, sometimes there can be things amines which build up in like um, aged food or histamines etc sometimes those can be triggering to different mechanisms around a headache and then emotionally i started here but then kind of jumped around um, emotionally if someone's kind of like grinding their teeth or something like that it's part structural but it started in the brain where someone's kind of like solving problems in their sleep and kind of clenching their teeth and creating a bit of a structural issue but also causing kind of a tension headache so you could run that through multiples. Like if someone comes to me with an emotional distress, they're usually going to go to like the therapist or the counselor first or the emotional piece. Then they might actually go to the chiropractor next because they've seen that be involved in mood stuff. And then they might finally make it over to the nutritional corner and look at how what's going on nutrition from a food digestive, et cetera, experience. And a mentor that I really like, I don't know if you know, Datis Karazian, yeah. I think he's also a chiropractor by trade, but something I've paid a lot of attention to him about recently is that there's more about gluten sensitivity and neurology research coming out. And so only one third of gluten sensitivity presents in a GI capacity. And most of it's like a brain capacity. And it's like, well, which, who started the situation? But in general, that sensitivity is causing potentially some mood stuff. So figuring out what that looks like. And also, can you like calm down the brain from like essentially these messengers in the body from kind of freaking out? That's what often is happening with sensitivity stuff is like, there's some messengers freaking out. <laughs> They're like, this is not going right. I'm going to have a problem. <laughs> and so you need to quell that and calm it down. So just a few examples on how you can look at kind of any symptom or condition through that triad. And that can help you think, oh, so often we get in a state of overwhelm. And I think once we were already starting overwhelm and we just add more to the plate, we pile it up and we're like, now I'm more overwhelmed. And instead of that, I'm like, how can we just like split this into sections and say, you can do a little bit of something in every section, but you might prioritize one over the others for a while. Yeah. I think that's a great triad trifecta. I think it's for someone who feels kind of paralysis by analysis in their diagnosis can feel empowered, which yeah. I love. And they can, you know, I think women can start to use for themselves. I like to oversimplify everything because we just don't, there is a lot of pieces, but if you just put it under umbrellas, it's all like under a few umbrellas overall. And then I think people say like, I tried so much and it's like from like a toxic bird standpoint, they're like, change my laundry soap. And I did this and I'm like, oh, cool. You did some environmental or essentially the structural angle. Yeah. Great. Now it's time to do the other two angles, you know, and that's fine. You did do a lot of things in that area and that's fantastic. But I'm saying there's a lot of opportunity if it feels like you've exhausted options. I bet there's a lot of opportunity or options left. You don't have to do all of them all the time. If you failed forward and not had success yet, I just want you to know there's options if you're willing to encounter them. Which can feel like creating freedom. Yeah. Like yeah. it's an option to have overwhelm or for you to say, I have options. I'm not stuck here where I am. You yeah. know, it's, it's, that's a nervous system shift as well. 
I love it. And where can people find you? Funny enough, my podcast is called The Less Stress Life, which was an accident in 2017. I was actually looking for a synonym for inflammation. And then it's become a beautiful umbrella, so to speak, of different yes. things to talk about. So I'm over at The Less Stress Life and at KristaBigler.com. Love it. Thank you so much. I feel like I've learned so much. I'm now no longer living at the top of my GI system, but going to be... In your brain. Yay. My brain and then my yeah. mouth and then my DI. <laughs> yeah. So many yeah. opportunities. <laughs> yeah. Thank you Thank so you. much. Thank you. If you enjoyed this episode or even learned just one new piece of information to help you on your Hashimoto's journey, would you do me a huge favor? Rate and review Thyroid Strong Podcast on iTunes, Spotify, or whatever platform you used to listen in to this podcast and share what you liked. Maybe you learned something new. And if you didn't like it, well, shoot me a DM on Instagram, Dr. Emily Kybird. I read and respond to every single DM. I truly believe all feedback is good feedback, even the ugly comments. If you're interested in joining the Thyroid Strong course, a home workout program using kettlebells and weights, where I teach you how to work out without the burnout go to dremilykybird.com forward slash TS waitlist. You'll get all the most up-to-date information on when the course launches and goes live, special deals and early access bonuses for myself and my functional medicine doctor friends. Again, dremilykybird.com forward slash TS waitlist. I hope to see you on the inside, ladies.